Today we're going to talk about how God's power helps those in hard times. And I trust that today's message will really bless you and impact your life in a great way. If you've just slotted in for the first time to our service, we would like to welcome you. To all our regular viewers, welcome to the service. I know this message will impact your life. I'm busy doing a study or preaching, doing a course on Ephesians, recording a course on Ephesians. We do about six uh, sessions per chapter where I explain Ephesians verse by verse. And in my study of Ephesians, we just start to see the heart of Paul. We start to see the heart of God and what the gospel is all about. And all of that and taking all that together, I felt I'm going to preach on Romans just with a background of what Paul was saying in Ephesians. Uh, for all of you that um, want to read a book in the Bible, do yourself a favor and go and read Ephesians. Read it through 15 times, 20 times. Uh, don't think if you've read it once, you know what is written there. There is so much depth, so much power, so much, uh, almost, I almost want to say hidden truth, understanding behind definition and words, that this will continue to enrich your life and it will provide a great platform for many other books uh, in, in the Bible. What we need to know is that the Apostle Paul didn't just have the most wonderful life the first day he believed. And from there, he was the top Christian and uh, couldn't learn anything because Jesus appeared to him and now he had everything working for him. The Apostle Paul went through some difficult times. Uh, if I read the letters of Paul, I, I find that he is, to a certain degree, a quiet person, not, a, a, not always an extrovert, but quiet. And we even see that. He says, in your presence, I was quiet, uh, seemed to be a timid person. But now that I am away, I write, in these, I write these strong words. And then he says, I would rather write them now than be present with you and uh, come over harshly. That, that's what he said. And I think he didn't, didn't just do it that way from the beginning. Uh, there was a time when we would see uh, Paul go about and when Peter didn't uh, do things right, he would stand up in front of everybody knowing very well that Peter was like the big shot uh, of the apostles and he rebuked him in front of everybody. Now imagine I do that today. I go to a conference and there is uh, two, three hundred people then I just stand up in the middle and take the big shot on and tell him, listen, and you know that that guy walked with Jesus, saw Jesus, all those kind of things, and stand up and rebuke him and call him a hypocrite in front of everybody. I'm sure that when Paul looked back at that, he must have had thoughts in his heart that said, I could have dealt differently with that. Uh, there were things wherein... Uh, I believe with Barnabas, for instance, where he looked back and you could see there was almost a little bit of what was in Peter, in Paul, to a certain degree, uh, wherein he would do things and then, like Peter, looking back, thinking, man, I shouldn't have done it that way, I should have done it this way. Uh, although I believe that the doctrine that Paul preached was absolutely accurate, what I do see is that the Apostle Paul, according to Romans 7, says, that there was a time when he was alive without the law, full of life, happy and blessed. And then when the commandment came, when the law came back into his life, he found 
all manner of uh, desire in his heart. And he realized that, and he realized the doctrine of Romans 7. He realized the doctrine of Romans 8. That's why he wrote it down there, because he wrote it out of first-hand experience. There was a time where he, it was going well with him, and then a time when things weren't going well. There was a time when the Apostle Paul was tempted to find the, uh, his identity in the size of his ministry. You say, no, Bertie, that's written nowhere. Yes, it is written clearly in the Scriptures, where Paul came and he prayed and he said to, uh, to God, he said, would you please remove this thorn in the flesh from me? And then it clearly says what the thorn of the flesh was. I don't know why it is such a difficult thing to find out what the thorn of the flesh is. It's simple, plain text right there. It, it is a messenger from Satan. A messenger from Satan. As what Paul was, a messenger from Jesus, doesn't mean he was an angel, a physical angel, or a spiritual angel. He was a physical angel. Angel also means messenger. Paul was a messenger of Jesus, and then there was a messenger from Satan. And I believe what it is all about is there was a message preached. And the biggest thing, even if you study Ephesians, if you study Galatians, it is so clear that Paul was completely against the Judaizers. Plus, if you go and study out what the thorn in the flesh is in the Old Testament, and this is what I just want to inform you guys to do, if you find the concept in the New and you want to know what does thorn in the flesh mean, obviously, Paul would use things like that, Peter would use things like that from the Old Testament context or the Old Testament perspective because that was their understanding and their language. So go back into the Old and look, where was thorn in the flesh used? How did they use thorn in the flesh? How was it used in their communication? And, and what was the understanding around that? Plus, you can also go to uh, literature that's outside of the Bible to see how did the people that time use that term. And from there, you can understand what, what it means. Thorn in the flesh was simply, and this is what it meant, it meant that when you went into a land and you had a war there, and um, you conquered that land, you should kill all the inhabitants of the land. Because, and this is what the Bible says, and this is the context where it was used, that if you don't kill all the inhabitants of that land, then they will become a thorn in your flesh. In other words... It is people of the old country that is still left in the new country. And that's exactly what happened with Paul. Paul came and they, he was from the law system. And then when Christ came and brought the new, there were still people of the old system alive in that time as what they are now. And they would come and Judaize all the churches where he preached. And he wanted God to end that. Why would he want God to end that? It's simply uh, because of the havoc it brings in the church. Remember Paul said that the whole of Asia believed when they preached. And not long after that he said that they had nobody that believed in them in Asia. Meaning that all the work they've done just came to nothing. The same thing he said in, um, in, in Galatians, in Philippians. He, he says to them, I don't want to preach to you and that my preaching would be in vain or for no reason to you. I want you to stand before Christ in His return and have the glorification that was promised. And that can only come through continual belief in Jesus Christ and a continual relationship with Him. And he says, I don't want this to be for nothing. We find the writer of the book of Hebrews, which I think would be Paul, 
we find the writer of the book of Hebrews saying the very same thing. We don't want to preach to you in vain. We don't want this to be for nothing. And the understanding that uh, Paul then received from the Lord was, listen, my grace or my visitation in your life is more than enough. You don't need to have all these churches. Like Paul said, my ministry would have excelled beyond measure, should it not have been for this thorn in the flesh. Would have had such a great impact in the world, should it not have been for the thorn in the flesh. And Paul was not seeing that the letter to the Ephesians, for instance, that he was writing from jail, which he secretly slipped out of jail, would impact the whole of the world. Billions of people later, a thousand 900 years after he wrote that, that it would impact. He didn't see that. <clears throat> so even the Apostle Paul was going through very difficult times. I don't think that Paul would, uh, in every situation, handle everything right. And surely, even in those difficult times, even when he was persecuted, even when he was going through all of that for the gospel, people didn't like him for what he said. Uh, people didn't want to be there, his friend because of what he said, because he was, what he was saying was contrary to the old system, like many of you that are in the web church would have. Many of you are in this web church because you don't find and you're not part of a local church where there, um, where there is a, a, a body of believers that believe the same way you can fellowship with them. And whenever you go to a meeting or whenever you fellowship with people, you can fellowship and and, and smile and be happy and everything until you say something and immediately they will find that what you say, doesn't matter how kindly you say it, uh, it's different. And the moment they realize that things are different, they are standing in front of a choice. They can either accept the truth or reject the truth. And in many of your cases, people didn't accept that. doesn't mean that they will never accept it. It just means in your case, it wasn't accepted. And uh, now you can feel rejected or you can feel, I, I don't know what's going on. When I was under the law, I had more people love me and um, it was going better to a certain degree, but look at what is going on now. Yet on the other side, in your personal relationship with God, you find so much more peace. You feel loved by God, you feel accepted, and it's almost as if there's a bit of a difficulty. I know about that because I've experienced that for myself. At this stage in my life, it's going well with me uh, concerning that. I mean, we've got the, the, the churches in our area here, three churches and people that we can fellowship with, people we can talk to about this. But I remember a time when I was alone. And many of you might be going through that as you're watching this. And I want to encourage you today. The Apostle Paul went through the very same thing. The Apostle Paul went through that, but he also talked about how God would empower us. What I love about the, uh, the letter to the Ephesians is that Paul comes and he writes to the Ephesians from the perspective of the power of the gospel and what happened in their lives when they first believed upon Jesus. When they believed upon the Lord for the first time, <clears throat> these Gentiles had a great encounter with the very person of God, almost like Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus, after he met with the Lord, he found a change in life to the point that he said, now remember this man loved money. I just want to ask something. Can you bring me some water, please? <clears throat> um, he really loved money. He, he, was, he was for the money thing. He, he wanted to be rich. He wanted to uh, show how much wealth he had. And in the setting of the Jews back then, 
I'm sure Zacchaeus felt, well, I'm the blessed here. You guys call me cursed that I work for the, uh, <clears throat> for the, the, the Romans, but I'm the blessed because in Ju Judaism, blessedness was defined by financial prosperity. That is what it was all about. And here Zacchaeus comes and he from his high horse of wealth want to see who Jesus is. Jesus visits him and what happens? In that visitation, there was a power that caused him to say, I'll give half of what I own to the poor. And if I stole anything from anybody, I'll return it fourfold. You find a change in life. The very same thing happened in Ephesus. The people heard about Jesus, <coughs> the, the Gentiles, and as they heard about Jesus, all of a sudden they loved the Jewish saints. And Paul said, when I heard about your love for the saints, I realized that what you heard was the real thing because it's bringing forth a brand new life in you. Now remember, the Jews, would, the Jews and Gentiles in a great way, hated one another. They didn't love one another. It wasn't as if the Gentiles felt, man, you know, look at these Jewish people. They are wonderful people. They were the people that first walked with God and, and all of that. No, that is not what they, what they believed. <coughs> what they believed was, these Jewish people are racists. Because that is what that Judaism was all about the way wherein it was seen by the Jews of that time. It was absolute racism. It was, we are the Jewish race, and you are not the Jewish race. And this race is God's race. And you guys don't have a law that was given to you in the finger of God, but we have. And from that, that, that elevated state of, we are better than the Gentiles, and we are... We are, you know, we are the people of God and we are supposed to rule and reign over the world with this law that God has given us. And then above that, they had a temple with a wall and a sign that said, no Gentile uh, beyond this because they will defile this place. Imagine you're a person, someone else says, if you are present here, there needs to be certain washings and certain rituals and all those things because you have defiled just by who you are. Your holy works didn't have anything to do with Just by your ethnicity, you defile the very temple of God. Do you think that those people would love the Jews? No. They hated the Jews. As much as what you would find if one people group oppresses another people group, that their children and those people eventually start to hate the oppressor. In the very same way, they hated the Jews. That's why even in Samaria, they wouldn't allow Jesus to walk through the city. No, you can walk around our city. <laughs> Take the five miles around. You're not coming, coming through the city. Why? It was because of all that antagonism, all that bitterness and that hatred. But here we find the people in Ephesus, the Gentiles, believed and all of a sudden Paul heard of their love for the saints. And then from that power of what I would call initial salvation or the first, first encounter of salvation, Paul draws on that and then writes to them and say to them, you see how this worked? You believed and after you believed you found this power? That's how the rest of all of this also works. It's not about your works. <clears throat> Paul comes in to protect the church and help the church against all these Judaizers and getting back into the law where they will just have the fruit of the flesh. Now, uh, the 
when we see, and the, the reason why I make that point is, that the gospel is a gospel of power. And we can expect power in our difficult times. What I think we many times do is, we believe the truth and we find the joy of the gospel that comes forth in us when we believe the gospel. And then when the hard times come, we think, well, we need to handle this persecution. We need to handle this difficult time. Or when you're difficult, I mean, maybe your husband doesn't believe or your wife doesn't believe or your children doesn't believe and, and now you cannot have open conversation with them and you're in a very difficult, tight spot right there. What shall we do in those cases? The Bible writes about that. This is in Romans <clears throat> 5 verse 1. It says, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, before we continue, let me just summarize what I, <clears throat> what I am saying here. This is the summary. The gospel is the power that brings a brand new life. That's all I want to say from the beginning until now. The Apostle Paul was a person that didn't just have everything smooth all the time. He wasn't this Christian that all the time God had everything going for him and all the time acted correctly in every situation. No, I'm sure that if we can take the life of Paul, <clears throat> if you would live with him, you wouldn't live with him for a very long time but before you find that he's also got some form of fears, he's also got some form of difficulty and all those kind of things. And then I want us to look at the life of Paul and how he addressed the power of God in the life of the Ephesians as well as in the life of the people in Rome and how he shares that this power encourages us when we feel lonely, when we feel rejected, when we're going through difficult times. How does all of this work? Now he starts off in Romans 5 and he says that we are justified by faith and we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when he says that we are justified by faith, um, <clears throat> we shouldn't only look at that as a legal term in the justification of we're not guilty anymore. That, that, that is not what it talks about. Because the context here comes from chapter 4, where he says that we believe that, um, let me read from verse uh, 22, it says, and therefore it was imputed to him for righteousness, now, it was not only written for his sake, Abraham's sake, that it was imputed to him, but for us also, to whom it shall be imputed, if we believe on him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered for our offenses and raised again for our justification. So here he comes and he declares justification as being saved from sin and death. That is what he, what he, what he means there. So, he's saying that when you are justified, it means it is what will come your way in belief in the resurrection. So, justification is what we will have because of the power of the resurrection, which is a new life. Now, he goes on, he explains some of that. He says, um, therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That word peace with God doesn't talk about peace like in a war, the ending of a war. That word peace should be seen in the context of the word harmony, which is found in the Greek for one of the meanings of the word peace. He says, we are justified by faith and, and have now harmony with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's exactly what happened to Zacchaeus. The, he believed in the Lord and when he believed, he was justified with the life 
of Jesus in him becoming a giver, in him becoming kind and loving and wanting to correct all the wrong he brought in this world and all the pain that he brought in this world. Can you see how Zacchaeus climbed into the tree uh, and then he wanted to see what kind of a man Jesus was in Luke 19 and then Jesus came to him and said to him, Zacchaeus, quickly get out of this tree and when he got out of that tree, Jesus said to him, for today I must come to your house and the Bible says Zacchaeus quickly did that <clears throat> and he believed on the Lord, he trusted that word believe means to, uh, uh, the word believe I'm using here, I use with a mindset of having his mind at rest in the integrity of Jesus and as Jesus came and visited him, as Jesus came and visited him, he justified him for he called him a son of Abraham. You can go and read it in Luke, he says, after all Zacchaeus is also a son of Abraham and when Jesus called someone a son of Abraham, he referred to faith and doing the deeds of Abraham which was belief. So Zacchaeus believed and when he believed, Jesus justified him in the difficult time that he was in, where he couldn't see Jesus, where there was a crowd, there were so many difficult things. From just trying to see Jesus and find out who he is, what happens? Jesus visits him and visits him with his life. This morning I <clears throat> used this example. If, you, if I own a very expensive car, and I want to share that car with someone. I can go to his house and say to him, come, take this car, I go with you, and you can uh, uh, drive it for uh, 20 kilometers or something and feel the power of it and, and enjoy it. And I can come once a month and we can just, I can take you for a ride in this car or I can even tell you, here is the car, take it for a ride every now and then. You know what? The person will be able to experience the car, but the person will never be able to experience your life because he doesn't know what it is to be the owner of the Bugatti. You know, he doesn't know what, what it means to be the owner of that car. The only way wherein you can actually share your life with that person is if you make him an heir of who you are and you cause him to be a co-owner of that car and you sign half of the car over to him. And once you sign half the car over to him and he's a co-owner of that car, then he will know what it feels to be the owner of that car, in the very same way with the love and the goodness of God. We can find the love and the goodness of God towards us, wherein we feel that He loves us, which is great. It, would be, uh, it can be compared to taking a drive in the car, but it is still, the other person is still the owner of the car. But the moment you get born of the love of God and that love gets born into you to the point that it is also part of you, then you became a sharer and you can actually share in the very life of God. And that is what Paul is talking about here when he talks about justification. He's talking about a justification where we are justified with the resurrection life of Jesus by us having the Holy Spirit bring forth that life as authentic ours on account of God in us. And then he says here, by whom, by this Jesus, we have access by faith into this grace given uh, and we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So what he's saying here is, he says, now remember we're talking about hard times, how to go through hard times. He says, when we look at Jesus, 
we are justified with the life of Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. And then he says, by grace we have access, or by faith we have access into this grace wherein we stand. In other words, he says, we stand in the very visitation of God, the influence of God on our hearts, wherein we experience the first fruit of God. But he says that is not it. We have this and then we rejoice in the hope of the glorification. Now what does that mean? That means, it simply means that we now experience a certain fruit in our life, but that is not all. There is still something that must still be, and that is the glorification or the resurrection. So what he's talking about, he's talking about a peace in the presence of not having everything manifest in your life. That is what he's talking about. I look at my own life. If I look back, I say to Helena, many times I've said that to her, I, I wish I knew what I know now when I was 20. My life would have looked so much different. That's what you think in your, in your mind, just naturally speaking. Some will say, oh, Bertie, never say that or whatever. Well, too late. I've already said it many times. Uh, you know, you think of what you know and you think of what you've done long ago and you, you think that wasn't the wisest thing to do. You should have done it this way or you should have done it that way. But, you know, we can't cry over spilled milk and that's it and we continue with our life. And what I'm trying to say by that is, in the beginning when I just got a hold of the grace message, I didn't know what I know now. I didn't have the wisdom that I have now, neither did I have the experience of the power of this gospel as what I have it now. Yet, back then, I was as happy as what I am now. So it means that there is a, a joy in the presence of a lack. Now you might say, Bertie, we lacked nothing. Everything was done for us. Yes, everything was done for us. The whole ticket was paid. Everything was done. And we, the Spirit of God is bringing forth fruit in our lives. But as we understand and know more about this good news, and as we find what it is to rest in His power, rest in His goodness, we find that He manifests and we find that it's just like our hearts gravitate towards and actually receives more of what He has already done. And so experientially, we experience more of this goodness. So that's the first point I want to make as pertaining to going through hard times. Yes, it is possible that you cannot have everything manifest in you, yet you can also be happy. Because here he says that we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So they say our joy is in, thank God for what we have now, but we also rejoice in this glorification that will come. Now he goes on further, it says, and not only so, but we glory in tribulation also knowing that tribulation works patience and patience experience and experience hope. Now, it goes on verse 5, it says, Hope makes not ashamed. Why? Because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. Now, what is he saying there? And I want to close off by explaining that passage, and I'm sure it will help a lot of you as you go through hard times. This is what I think of when I go through hard times, when I'm in a difficult time, when I'm in a time when I think, man, I shouldn't have done it this way, I should have done it that way, and so forth. Not from a condemnation point of view, where I feel guilty because of what I've done, but where I know, listen man, 
I see some shortcomings or just try to raise kids and then you see the shortcomings that you have in your life. It is, they are teenagers and sometimes, you know, they, they're emotional and you say one thing and then you think, well, I understand that they're emotional and maybe I should have said it this way and to help them and teach them and get them into, to understand more of the grace of God and, and grow up in, in this world as successful people. Successful, I mean, understanding the gospel and having a life born from the gospel. And you just see, I should have done this way, I should have done that way. Or you come in church, like with, in my case with church. You look at, at encounters with leaders, encounters with people where you differ and those kind of things. And you realize how you could do things a little bit differently. And now maybe you find persecution or maybe something is not your, your, your fault. You just preach the truth for the way it is and you're going through difficult times. You're going through that rejection. What do you do? Here's what Paul says. He says, we rejoice in the hope of the good that is to come. Glory to God, because we know it is all Him that will manifest it. We are thankful for the life that we have today, and that is in verse 5. And then he goes on and he says, but we rejoice in this glorification that will also come, but we also glory in tribulation, for we know that tribulation works patience. You know what he's saying there? He's saying that the moment you experience tribulation or a difficult time, the first thing that the grace of God works in us is patience. The ability to endure that. And let me explain to you this way. Um, if you look at somebody that loses his child, and the child dies in an accident or something, what would you say? What would be the first thing? Even as I say this, I can feel it in my own heart. Uh, Lord, just not me. I, I will not be able to make it. I can't make it. But if you look at people that that happened to, have you seen that how in that difficult time they are strengthened in that time? It's as if you don't experience that strength now until it happens. And the moment it happens, the power of God is there. And it helps you in that time. So I want to say to you that when you go through a difficult time, don't separate your time now. Well, the gospel is about the good that will happen in my life and what I've received in Jesus about healing and prosperity and whatever we would call under the old charismatic system. We would call it all of that. And now when a difficult time and persecution come, now it's up to me to resist the stupid devil. And now I must cast it out and I must speak to the situation. And I must change the situation and I must now take all the tricks of the trade in the gospel and I must apply it now and just make this good kingdom work now. No, that is not how you deal with that. That's not how you have a stable life. If I think in my own life and how it's helped me, uh, you know, you think of preaching and spreading the gospel, the ministry, finances. I've just, I think it was Derek Day, I don't know who uh, put it on Facebook, they wrote and they said, that if you're a bivocational pastor now, that's just a big word for meaning that you're not full-time in ministry in the sense of uh, you get paid a salary from the church that is enough that you don't have to work another job. That's all it means. That if It doesn't mean you're a second-class pastor, which I fully agree with. Hallelujah. And if I read, read something like that and I wrote there, I'm very grateful that I'm in the situation where I don't have to work another job uh, to do what I'm doing. And I'm very grateful for that. Although I've worked another job for many years. 
I have done that. But when I look at my situation now, I'm grateful and in my mind I don't want to do another job. I love what I'm doing. I love spending the time in studying the scriptures. I love having my mind revolve around this gospel all day. Well, I don't have to think of uh, how to bring in finances, how to do business, how to do all of that. Well, I can think of this good news and serve people with a good meal every Sunday and bring the the gospel as pure as possible to people from a heart that has prayed about the gospel, thought about the gospel, and ministered this gospel, and see people being discipled in this message. That's, that's what I love. But if I think of what if I lose support? What if it's not there anymore? You know what brings me peace in that time of difficulty? Is, well, when I get there, the Holy Spirit empowers me. Because in that time, he brings forth patience or, or another word for it is endurance. And then endurance brings forth experience. That word experience doesn't mean to experience something. The Greek word there is trustworthiness. What it means is that this gospel is trustworthy. And when I go into a difficult time, the trustworthiness of this gospel will carry me through. That is all it means. It's not as if when I go into a difficult time, now I must make sure that I bring forth uh, a change and I push through and I make it work by my faith and all those kind of things. I remember time whenever I would go into a difficult time, I would think, oh my goodness, the devil. You know, like this, um, this morning, my, my son, uh, when we, or last night, when we, when he, we put the car into the yard um, to lock it and we... When we started it, I think the cam belt broke or something. And it's just a massive noise in the engine and you know it's expensive. Well, so what happens when that happens? Well, we're going to either fix the car or get another car. I mean, that's the thing. You can't walk. And uh, what will happen in the midst of all of that? Well, it doesn't matter because now all of a sudden you can get to your mind. You can get things like, well, you shouldn't have bought that. You shouldn't have done this. You shouldn't have. Then you would have had more money. And, and so many things can come to your mind. But in this time, do you know what I feel in my heart? Absolute peace. And I can live with that peace, doesn't matter, thinking of any car or any situation. Because in that time, you find a, an, an empowerment, glory to God. Maybe we can just take it and it's not even a, a massive thing. Even if it is, who cares? At the end of the day, in that situation, that is where the strengthening comes. And in that hard time, the Bible says clearly that this, this gospel, I don't even want to point to the Bible, but the, this message of Jesus, if you think of the incarnation of Jesus, it is powerful. And when I think of a hard time, I just say, well, in that time, God will help me emotionally. In that time, this gospel will bring forth the endurance and will bring forth the patience and the trustworthiness will be shown. And in that trustworthiness, what it brings forth at the end of the day is hope. It just makes us hope more and have a stronger expectation because now that I see how God has helped me in that little difficult area, in, in the other difficult area, and the other difficult area, just think of your life. Think back in your life, your Christian walk on how many times God has helped you through situations. And as you look at all those things where His grace has brought you through, what does it do? It strengthens the understanding of hope. The hope that 
you will have immortality in his return. The hope that he can sort out all the problems of this world. The hope that he can make everything new as he has promised. The hope that the resurrection brings us. And then it says, that hope does not make ashamed. Now what I mean by that is, and what the Bible means by that is, that hope doesn't mean that hope, when the Bible says hope maketh not ashamed, it doesn't mean that the hope will definitely happen. It's not what that passage means, although the hope will definitely happen since Jesus has already been raised. We need to realize that if you take the resurrection, it was what was supposed to happen in the end of time and was put in the middle of time so that in the, this, this thing that happens in the middle of time can bring forth what is supposed to happen in the end of time which is our resurrection. So the fact that Jesus was raised from the dead is already the final seal on the fact on that this will happen. It is the proof that our resurrection is sure because that is our resurrection. Jesus even said that he is the resurrection. So I don't want to get too deep into that now. But when we look at all of this, what does it bring forth? The hope the hope maketh not ashamed. As we have this confident expectation of the glorification, it doesn't make us ashamed in this life because we love people. The love of God has been shed abroad in how we believe about ourselves and about people. So this is what he says. And let me summarize it this way. The Apostle Paul didn't have everything all the time going for him. And many of the things that he wrote he wrote from experiential knowledge combined with the spiritual logic that he found in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's how he wrote Romans 7, Romans 8. That's how he wrote about the fruit of the Spirit, uh, how he wrote about the fruit of the flesh in Galatians. That was what his logic was. I don't believe Jesus told him, write these things down. This is what you must write. And then he wrote that without understanding. No, the Apostle Paul knew when he was under the law, that was the fruit that was in his life. And then when he started to believe in Jesus, he realized, man, look at my life now. I love people. I see all people as the same. <clears throat> I don't see separation anymore. I don't honor a man according to his income anymore. I see the person for who he is. I start to see people, Gentiles, Jews, all those kind of people, not based on their flesh. I start to see them for the treasure, the gold that they really are. That is who I'm seeing them. And now I want to come and I want to preach Christ as the Messiah of all people. For I realized they were all included in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I've seen how this message brings forth life in so many Gentiles. So now I'm going to the Gentiles in the hope that they would believe this and have this brand new life. That is Paul through that experience. He wrote these things. And he writes in Romans 5. He says that, we rejoice in the glorification, in what the resurrection promises. But our rejoicing is not only in the good to come and when bad comes, we don't have any joy. Because when the bad comes, the joy we have now is we know that this faith is trustworthy. Why? Because it is all about Jesus conquering the bad in this world. So when bad comes our way, we know the life in us free from our willpower, is already greater than the bad. If I look at my life, there were bad times in my life where I was in doubt and unbelief, when I was complaining, when I was this and that, and then it still turned out good. Why? Because the life in me is the life of God. 
and he still was faithful to what he said. This message and what he's done is still trustworthy. Be honest with yourself. Just be completely honest. If you think of difficult times you went through and where the outcome in the end was good and how you received freedom, did you in all the time when you was in a difficult time confess right, speak right, faith right, do everything right? No. Many of you, most of you, had a lousy way of dealing with it. Maybe complaining every now and then. Then say, oh Lord, I had a week of good confession, then three days of uh, some, sometimes even swearing at God. And then what happens in the end? It still works out. It shows the trustworthiness of this message. So now, as you start to understand these things, it can bring calmness and peace to your heart that when those situations come, and you can actually sit back and say, well, I don't have to have a tantrum every time something like this happens because I know the outcome, I know the hope. And in the midst of all these things, since this hope of the resurrection has got this supernatural thing on me that it brings forth love in my heart, even in the midst of people bad-mouthing you, people unloving you, what, you still love people because this hope doesn't make a shame today because... Through this hope, the love of God is shed abroad in my heart. What does Paul mean when he says that? He says, the hope that I have is that both Jew and Gentile can be partakers of the resurrection. And the hope that I have is that God, God conquers sin and death. And that is the hope. And that is what I see, the resurrection. And as I see that, and I see all people included into that, what does it do towards the person in front of me today? It makes me love that person. That's what it does. You know, even today when we drive through, um, we're at the gate, where, like a boom gate, where we enter into the place where we preached. Um, in the, it's like a, a gated community there. And uh, the guy comes with a little machine, he checks the, you know, they, they've got a barcode thing, they scan the car, make sure it's not stolen, the whole thing, whatever. Check your ID documents before you can go in, or a driver's license, and um, all put into the system. When I look at, and, and when he came and walked around the car, what was in my mind is, that person, that person is God's dream. That person is beautiful to God. That person, uh, uh, Jesus is his Messiah. And I find a love for, for him. The person that comes to my house begging, when I, when I give him a uh, hundred rand, when I bless him, with something or give them food or whatever, whatever, excuse me. I, I, I look at what Jesus said, you, you are doing it unto me. That is the very, he is the very dwelling place of God. He is qualified the temple of the Lord. Jesus is his Messiah. His sin, his death was conquered by the Messiah. So this hope of the resurrection makes me not ashamed in this life as I can even love on people whilst going through difficult times. Glory to God. Now, summarizing everything, and I want to go back to what I said last week. The Bible says, if your eye is single, that word single means a braiding. In other words, in Afrikaans, those, those that are Afrikaans, a flexel. Now, the moment you say braid, you immediately know more than one. So when your eye is single, when you can see yourself braided into the Trinity, 
then your whole life will be full of light, even in the midst of persecution, even in the midst of difficulty. In other words, I'm not saying there will not be difficulty. Difficulty is experienced as something that is difficult. That is it. It's experienced as it's not easy. It is not easy. I think of traveling up into Zambia uh, years ago when I just went with old, beaten up, broken cars. You, you go up there, Elena and I, we went up into Mozambique preaching there. We had only had enough money one way. And then over there, you're in the middle of the bush. There's no offering. <laughs> it's not like I'm going faith and I'm going to preach, preach, uh, not asking anything, but you know the people there at least have got enough money that if somebody feels to be generous, you can have enough money to come back from an offering. No, there is no offering. There are some people back then, just after the war, that has not ever seen money. Plus, many places there would not even be fuel. And we would go up there and we would preach until all our money is finished. And then make plans. Use half paraffin, half, half gasoline in the car. Driving it that way. Doing whatever we, we had to do. That thing smokes like you can't believe. But that's how we drove and that's how we came through. But even in that time, even in that it was experienced as difficult times, but in that difficulty, which was experienced as difficulty, we had a supernatural smile somehow. There were times we said, oh, this, I wish I could have a new car. I you would say that, but there's deep in the heart still a joy. And that is what God has given to all of us. Don't be uh, dismayed if you look in the mirror and don't always find a smile on your face. Look at the smile in your heart. Many times we know deep inside us everything will work out. And then we say things that contradict what we actually believe in our heart. And then we start to condemn ourselves and feel guilty because we've now said things and confessed things that's contrary to what we actually believe in our heart. You know, that which is in your heart is what matters at the end of the day anyway. Glory to God. I want to tell you that you are precious and loved by God and He cares for you. He holds you with an eternal hope. It's got an eternal hold on you. And it's not about how strong you hold on. It's about how strong His hold is on you. And that's what we believe in. So I want to say to you that although the Apostle Paul didn't have everything going for him, he continued with his gospel. And at the end of his life, he said, I've run my race. You know, I've done what I had to do. I felt that I could give expression to what was in my heart. And I am ready to, uh, to pass away, I'm ready to die, and I await the resurrection, seeing that glorification of which I've always dreamt. That's what Paul said. So in the difficult time, what do we do? We simply know that this message does have the trustworthiness. It does have the ability to bring forth endurance. It's almost like when you drive a 4x4 vehicle. You don't put it in 4x4 unless you get the thick sand or the mud. But the moment you go into that thick sand, what do you do? You bump that thing into four by four and then you say, let's go. And then those extra differentials and gearboxes start to come in and the thing comes and the computers and everything that makes everything work smooth works. And then you drive in the thick sand. You will feel it's maybe a bit more of a bumpy ride, but you're still going. In the very same way, I want to say to you that that is what Paul is actually saying. This gospel is already in you. And when the hard time comes, it just kicks into all wheel drive, you know, and then it, pulls you through, knows that. That's how the gospel works. So you can even ex expect in a difficult time that 
although it feels difficult, the gospel is still working, the trustworthiness will be shown, and as you keep your eyes on the braiding where you've been braided into the Trinity, uh, into His glorified life, you will find even that time, you find a deep love for people. Glory to God. I want to thank you so much for watching. I want to say to you that you are loved by God, you are cared for by God, and He will always care for you. He's not going to stop and take His hand off you one day when you have done something wrong. He, uh, he has started a good work in you, and it's for Him to complete it, not for you. All we can do, is like the Apostle Paul in Ephesians said so many times, and this is what He wanted people to have, and I said it this morning in the church as well, what understanding does, understanding doesn't make the gospel work better. What understanding does is it keeps away what doesn't work. Those of you that have followed my ministry now for some years and, and, and believe the truth about tithing, for instance, if you understood what you understand now, you would never have fallen for the tithing teaching and you would never have experienced that abuse and pain. That is, that is all. That's why Paul wants us to have this understanding. So what we can have is, and if you want to know what to do from your side in a difficult time is, keep your eyes on the union between you and God in Christ, number one. Number two, as you keep your eyes on that, you just pray the prayer as Paul prayed. That's what he did. He prayed. He asked the Father. He says, Father, please let these people understand how high, how wide, how deep, and how long your love is so they can have the fullness of your life manifest inside them. And that is what it's all about. Glory to God. I would like to pray for you as we end the service. Father, I want to thank you so much that I could sit here today and encourage your body from your heart where I can feel your compassion and your love for your people. Thank you that you care for them. Thank you that you love them. I pray for people that are going through, through very difficult times, people that are lonely. There are so many people feeling lonely, rejected, not knowing if they're good enough where they believe the gospel for a time and then they see it work and they, they've got, they're in the bliss of knowing something new. And then when the something new washes off and it becomes common knowledge, the good becomes a common knowledge, then it's like, well, everybody knows this. What now? Um, how's it going to work? Father, I want to pray for those people. I want to pray for everybody, and I include myself in these prayers. I thank you, Father, that we can see how high, how wide, how deep, and how long your love is, that we can know the love of God, and not as something that we don't know, but that we can just know it over and over and over, and that it will be all we know. And thank you, Lord, that in that we can know what is the hope of the calling and as we understand these things we just start to see how this gospel smooths out our lives in a great way i pray for these people and i thank you lord as paul prayed for enlightened eyes of their understanding amen and amen i want to thank you so much for watching and we will see you then again next sunday this week i will not be um, at the office i will not be available at all we are going away at school holidays and uh, we are going away for five days into the Cedarburg and there is no uh, cell phone uh, towers there. Um, I think they've just, I don't even if they run it on uh, generators, electricity. So he's going to go away for five days. 
uh, me and the family, and then there's another um, friends of ours also going with, and we're just going to enjoy the five days there. So when I say to you, you will not see any posts on Facebook or anything like that. Uh, God loves you. God bless you, and I'll see you next Sunday.